I have a great guest for everybody today on Schneps Connects, the co-owner of the well-known Brooklyn Bowl, Charlie Ryan. Charlie was born on the south side of Chicago and was raised in Battle Creek, Michigan. He graduated from Dartmouth, and after a brief stint working as a stockbroker in San Francisco, he moved to New York City and worked as a commodities futures broker and trader at the Commodities Exchange until starting to explore the hospitality industry. Charlie Ryan opened Brooklyn Bowl in 2009 with Peter Shapiro. Brooklyn Bowl is a magnificent 23,000 square foot ironworks foundry building, which was a former abandoned warehouse. Charlie and his partner, Peter, were music gurus behind the former Wetlands Preserve in Tribeca. They had a dream and brought the venue to life in a relatively what was a Williamsburg secluded area at the time. They infused life to the area by combining live music, food by Blue Ribbon, 16 bowling lanes, stages and bars, all in one venue. They've hosted legendary performances, including Guns N' Roses, Elvis Costello, and The Roots. To date, Brooklyn Bowl has sold millions of tickets to thousands of shows. So great to have you here, Charlie. Thanks for being on the show. Quite an introduction. Thank you. One, one well-deserved. Well, you know, things are ready to pop in our neighborhood, as you well know. And uh, some people have given us the credit. Other people have given us the, the blame for really starting <laughs> it up. But in any case, you know, it's, it's probably a little overblown, but we were there kind of at the beginning of it really taking off. Yeah, you guys were around before a lot of other things were and and certainly are a staple in, in the neighborhood. And, and I think certainly has helped uh, tourism in the area, which is really pre-pandemic, it exploded. I feel like there were more tourists in the neighborhood than there were locals. Well, that's a good point. I mean, the, the neighborhood has changed so much. Um, it's, a, it's a wealthier neighborhood than it was by far. If we go back 15 years, a lot more tourists. Um, so the demographics on the street are really, really different from what they used to be. And they're, they're just fine, but they're, but they really have changed a lot. I want to get into how you first found that location, but before we do that, just give a little background in terms of how you went from finance into getting into the music industry. Oh, I love that question. It's one of my happier stories, which was, you know, I did fine in, in the commodities exchange, um, and I had had a group that I managed. We traded billions of dollars worth of, of precious metals, especially gold, pretty much throughout the 80s. So I'm dating myself by saying that because, <laughs> you know, I'm going back now over 30 years to when I made the change and got into the hospitality business. But for me, the, the, the experience of doing what I was doing too deep down was kind of counterfeit. It just wasn't, didn't resonate for me the way it did for other people, I suppose, you know, if people thought about me at all, maybe my parents or a girlfriend or something like that, people thought it was really cool. But I really needed to get into some place where I could do something much more social and really touch the experience that people had in their lives and their free time with their disposable income. You know, we just wanted to put together something where, well, I'm, I'm jumping ahead to Brooklyn Bowl, but when it came to Brooklyn Bowl, we really at that point knew that what we wanted to do was elevate everyone's experience, whether it was, whether it was the bowling, the, the, the images you'd see on the screen, the sounds that you'd hear much better than you could get in your own apartment, you know, just the food, everything about it, the service, we just wanted to elevate that experience. And that was really what, that kind of thing is really what drove me to want to, um, you know, get out of the business I was in and get into the business I'm in now. So were you always a music lover? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, I went to Woodstock. I, I quit uh, my summer job when I was 17 and hitched to Woods, Woodstock from Michigan. Um, things like that. I, when I was out in San Francisco, um, I was in San Francisco two different times. The first time really kind of as a dropout hippie for a few years before I went back and finished up college. But I worked a little bit for Bill Graham, really as a gopher, but, you know, he's a legendary figure. And that didn't happen by accident. I wanted to be in that realm. So even though I wasn't doing anything important at all, um, even back then, I was I was wanting to be around the music business, wanting to be around that kind of thing. So a lot of people didn't even know Williamsburg before it really became such a hot neighborhood. And your property where Brooklyn Bowl is, I mean, it's really it's almost like you were made for it and it was made for you. How did you get to Williamsburg and, and honestly find that huge space when you were, were looking? What brought you there in the first place? Well, honestly, what Peter and I did over a period of years was we didn't really prioritize this idea that we had, which didn't yet have a name. Uh, but every once in a while, one of us would call the other one, not necessarily he always calling me or the other way around and say, you know, that idea we've got, we got to get back out and pave the, pound the pavement a little bit and see what we can do with that idea. And that was the way we approached it. We went to neighborhoods that we kind of felt for some reason uh, were maybe where we wanted to be, which is a really bad way of going about it until it's a really good way of going about it. It's almost like hitchhiking. You know, if you put your thumb out and somebody picks you up and takes you exactly where you're going all the way across the country, that was a great idea. That was a great experience. And so for a long time, you know, we really kind of bumped into a lot of nothing by taking the approach that we did. But finally, when we, when we came and we saw the building, that was the first time we looked at each other and said, you know, I think this might be the one. We were really excited, had no idea whether we could make the deal for it, but that was the first time we really felt like maybe we were onto something. And what year was that? That was 2006. So you, you came up with the concept ahead of time or was it kind of evolving as you found the space? Because that space is so unique. And you've built that in such a great way. But well, was that- yeah, Josh, it was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of both because back in the wetlands days, uh, we would have we would take the staff out for um, more than holiday parties, uh, take them out a few times a year, you know, maybe on a Monday night when we didn't have much going on anyway. We closed down the club and we'd go spend a little bit of money and everybody have a good time. One time we took them to a bowling alley, which will remain nameless. <laughs> but, you know, when we did the postmortem the next day, we agreed on a couple of things. One was our staff just had a fantastic time. They were very childlike. And, you know, these kids were a little too cool for school. Usually you didn't see that kind of that kind of fun. In spite of the fact that the food was really awful, the sound system was terrible, the place was dirty and the service was indifferent. But the magic ingredient, of course, was the bowling. So we thought, well, we do know about food and beverage, and we do know about presenting live music, which is obviously a really hard thing to do or break into. And what if we really fuse the the bowling in a way that hasn't been done before into the things that we already know how to do? Uh, I think we might have a magic ingredient. So, you know, over time, what, what happened was because we didn't need to do it you know, next week, next month or whatever. We just kept looking and looking, but we came to know a lot more about our idea without trying that hard. While we were both doing different things, we'd think about it. I would sit with graph paper, you know, really old school 
kind of work out something that, that yes, it was really uh, prehistoric almost in terms of the approach, but I knew at the end of the day, whatever I was coming up with made sense. If, if it actually made sense in terms of the layout, I could take this to a, an architect and they would say, oh, I totally understand what you mean. Let me draw it up like a professional would do. So basically what I'm saying is our ideas really improved over the, over the years that we did that. And those years span from late in 2000 when we had the party to when we found the place in 2006. Again, we weren't doing this all the time. We weren't looking all the time. Every six or eight or 10 months or something like that, we'd go walk around for a day or two. And for several times, we were unsuccessful in that, but finally we were successful. So what was the first performance you had at Brooklyn Bowl? I'm not sure the answer to that. There was a band called Odeth that, that was kind of a big indie band at the time. One of the things that we did was we were ready with all our gear, but, but we didn't book the place out. So we didn't have a full schedule. We Intentionally, we wanted to work into figuring out how this room worked before we added the music component. So one day over on the waterfront, the next generation of the pool party, when the pool parties moved from McCarran Pool over to the waterfront, uh, they had lightning strikes. They had all kinds of things going on. And we were in touch with them and we knew them and they were in touch with us. And we said, well, can we take this show? Would you like us to do it today? We could do it. And it was Dan Deacon and Deer Hunter, I think. And, you know, great show, a lot of interest in it. Another band called No Name, you, you might remember from way back when. Mm-hmm. But those, those three were scheduled to play, and I think it was a sold-out show on the waterfront. And to their credit, the, the performers all said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, but you have to do two shows. In other words, they wanted to try to satisfy as many people as they could. They couldn't do three shows, but they, but they could do two, and they did, insisted on it. I think if we'd said, no, we're just going to do one show, they would have said, no, we're not going to do it. Interesting. So, but we were really happy to do two shows. So that was the first significant show that we did. And it was a magical show. I mean, I've still got footage of it somewhere with, you know, Dan Deacon getting everybody to hold up their lighters or I don't know. It was all this kind of candlelit thing that he did as he walked through the crowd. And, you know, it it was quite a thing. And, you know, it's just one of those deals where when you finally get a place open, if you're not arrogant, you wonder, well, how great is this going to be? Are people really going to love this place? I think they will. But the right perspective is to say, well, you know, let's let's not get carried away with it. Let's try to make it a place that people love. And that was the first time that I saw that the room really had the magic that we thought it did. Did you know you were onto something successful there? Did it take a little bit more time for you to realize that you were truly building great momentum for your business? Well, you know, there are a lot of different things that pointed that way. There was one time when we were first interviewing uh, our general manager, still our general manager, Stephen Schwartz, uh, and I sat up on the couches uh, in April thinking that we would open up in June. We didn't. We opened up on the 7th of July but pretty close. So we were starting to interview people and we sat there all day long talking to people. We had a great time doing it, but somewhere along the middle of the day, after being up there for hours, maybe a little bit past the middle of the day, we turned to each other and said, you know, it just feels great to be in this room and just sit in one spot and be in the room. Mm -hmm. Not every room affords you that kind of 
advantage in terms of moment people walk in, they love the actual physical surroundings, the, the exposed wood, just the irregular ceiling, whatever it is that adds up to that. Uh, and we realized that, that the room really does have a magic of its own. Talk about some of your favorite acts. I mean, you had some, some amazing bands come through there and performers. What, what comes to mind to you in terms of the top of, top of the list? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind are the, are the two people who really claim to have played musically the most. And I won't get into it, to it because it's just, a, it's just a good natured thing between the two of them. But Joe Russo in so many different forms, and of course with J-Rad, which sprang from our place, Joe Russo's Almost Dead, uh, which is a whole other story. You know, the shows that they did as, as their thing was just emerging, they, they started off being really doing a Led Zeppelin cover, which was outstanding. But then the response they got to doing the Grateful Dead thing, Joe Russo's Almost Dead, was so overwhelming that they couldn't do the, they really couldn't afford to do the, uh, the Led Zeppelin thing anymore. Mm. And then Eric Krasno is the other, you know, key person in this whole story, which is, He's played with so many bands. He, he was, he may have been the first scheduled band that we had to step on stage with his band, not with Soul Alive, but with, with Eric Krasno band. And he's played, these guys have played so many times over the years that probably they could count it, but I don't have any idea how many dozens of times each of them have played the place. And, you know, on top of that, you know, it, it really comes down to each person's impression. We had Toots and the Maytals play in that first fall, and I got up in the production booth, and that was another one of those revelatory experiences where you just go, oh, this place is surging. I don't think this, this could really happen <laughs> to the same extent in another room. And then a couple months after that, we had Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, you know, doing their, their old school soul call and response thing that they did. You know, rest in peace, Toots, rest in peace, Sharon. But it was just a magical night that just lifted the roof right off the place. There's just so many things. And, you know, these experiences continue to this day. We just have unbelievable nights and they don't happen every single night for every single person. You know, that's, that's kind of the magic of it. But if you do everything right and the bands come to it with the right spirit in the right room, uh, you're going to get more than your share of those magical moments. So you did expand to other rooms, though, right? Successfully, you've expanded to Las Vegas, uh, Nashville, and will be opening in Philadelphia soon. So what gave you the, um, the confidence to be able to open up additional locations? Well, I guess, you know, in the restaurant business, people always talk about, and it's kind of a cliche, you know, will it travel? You know, if you have an idea, will it travel? Is there something about your thing that will, will play in another town besides the place where you, you gave it birth? Um, in our case, you know, our idea is kind of deceptively uh, complex because hopefully it, it appears to be a simple idea, but there's a lot of different things going on. Mm. But we really did think that we had something unique to offer. And that's, that really comes to the heart of it. If you're going to go into uh, any market, do you really have something unique to offer? If you don't, you're probably fighting an uphill battle. But if you have something that you're going to do fundamentally differently than, than everybody else who's there or has been there, uh, that doesn't mean they're doing anything wrong, but it means you do have something to offer and there's a reason for you to go there. 
And so we did go to to Las Vegas, build a, a giant place there. It's it's you know it's three and a half times the size of Brooklyn Bowl, the original. Amazing. Um, and we built a place in in Nashville, which you know was was really a lesson in in keeping one's mind open because um, when that was first offered to us or to me to take a look at in terms of the design and the possibilities of it. It seemed to be a little bit too narrow for it to really work, but it just works so beautifully now, if I do say so myself, that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a lesson in point, really, that keep your mind open, don't rule anything out, you know, just, just see what you can make out of, out of anything. And, um, you know, each of these rooms does have a special magic to them, and uh, you, just, you just need to look at it from that standpoint of, you know, how is somebody going to want to be, or why is somebody going to want to be in each spot in the room? And if you can really answer that question, you're onto something. And I do try to apply that. Why would somebody want to be back in that corner? Well, okay, you know, there's probably a reason. Why would they want to be up there? Why would they want to be over there? So in, in each of these places, the, in the Nashville place, you know, where we've got an outdoor deck that overlooks the baseball field and you can watch the game from there like people do at Wrigley Field in Chicago. Wow. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just that that's a separate experience. Um, and it's a it's a very vertical room um, in Philadelphia. The room that we're building is on two levels. People are going to be able to eat and bowl and have a whole experience without really paying to to go in to see the show if they don't want to see the show or if they don't want to spend that money. But then in another area, we'll have the full-on venue with the bowling, with the drinks, the whole thing. So, you know, it's, it's, these are just exciting places to explore what you can possibly do with the hand you're dealt. Well, I could also tell why you're successful because no detail is too small, you know, thinking about literally where everyone is standing and, you know, how they can have a great experience wherever they are. That's true. Thank you for saying that. You know, one thing that is interesting about it is if you do bring that point of view to it, a lot of times you'll realize that you could do something to that area that you're looking at that would make it special. And if you don't examine it in that way, of course you wouldn't do that. So these are just things we've learned along the way. The place in, in uh, Nashville, we have a, a mezzanine. It's really more than a mezzanine. It's, it's really the second level, but it's where the balcony is and all that. And, you know, we learned from Las Vegas. Las Vegas works really, really well. It's a big room. It's a big high room. So is Nashville. But we moved the balcony and the, and the boxes down as far as we could without impinging upon the people underneath them mm. in terms of sound or in terms of their feeling of, of, you know, having enough space to really enjoy the show. We moved things down as much as we could. And the room is really visceral. It's really exciting, not only for the people who are in those boxes, but also for the performers on stage. And, uh, you know, you just, you try to learn with everything you do and say, how can we make this better? Because if we do another one, we're going to have another chance. So, you know, if anyone's been to your venue, they know it's got to be a massive investment. I mean, bowling lanes, the, the sound systems, the size of the, the venues, Talk a little bit about the pandemic and, you know, really how you got through it, but not just got through it. You're, you're literally planning on opening in Philadelphia next month, in the month of November. So talk a little bit through about, A, how you guys were able to survive 
and B, honestly, how you were able to, to make an investment in opening a new location? Again, it's a good question. The toughest one to get going is, is the first one. You know, you're just a couple of guys with an idea. And maybe you have a bit of a track record or a little reputation or something like that. And maybe it's a good reputation, but still, it's hard to raise that money in the first place. Mm-hmm. Now, we, now we do have those alliances. We do have borrowing power. We do have relationships that are pretty deep not only in the music community, but also financially and everything else. So we were really never worried whether we would be able to survive the pandemic. I think we probably would have been worried had we known that it could be at this point, 19 months, Mm. but you know, nobody thought that at the time. So we were pretty confident that we'd get through it. And in fact, we have gotten through it. What we're doing now is the same as we've done for a few years. We're looking at other opportunities, other locations, Um, other places that we might want to go. And it's more than ever a case of trying to know the unknowable. I mean, these places take a while to come to fruition. Let's just say four years, something like that. And so, you know, something we're working on right now will be open if it happens in probably in 25, you know, and what will the world look like then? Mm -hmm. We never thought that COVID would happen. We didn't know that it would have the effects that it's had. We still don't know what the, the total effects will be. And yet you keep on plowing ahead and you keep on being optimistic and figuring that you're gonna find a way and the world is gonna find a way and you're gonna be able to do the things that you love to do because people really, it's, it's, it's such a basic need for people to get out, socialize, hear music that at the end of the day, you, you'll be successful if you do what you do well. You know, we know each other because we're both locally involved in, in the Williamsburg community through the local chamber of commerce. And, you know, I think you do it knowing you just because you, you care about local community. But, uh, you know, I'm curious how much of your business, you know, throughout, because especially probably your other two markets in particular, Las Vegas and Nashville, I have to imagine that a lot of it is driven by tourism. But I don't know. I mean, t- talk about the difference between tourists and locals in, in, in terms of people that go to Brooklyn Bowl locations. That is a really great question. And it's a really great question from the standpoint that every place is a little bit different. I think Philadelphia is going to have a lot of similarities to, to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, Las Vegas does have locals, but, you know, in general, uh, they kind of stay to themselves. They they are either working somewhere, maybe on the strip or wherever they're, they're working in an office building or they're home. They're not, you know, they, they don't really mix it up so much. And yes, we are just off the strip in Las Vegas. So, you know, in, in Las Vegas, if you're really counting on the locals to, to show up, of course, you're going to get a lot of support from them and you're going to be friends with them, but it might be a little less true than in some other markets. And so we just promote our business in the same way as we do with, you know, anywhere. And Nashville, you know, again, kind of a hybrid between the two, becoming more and more of a tourist town. But there are a lot of people who live there and a lot of people who are grounded and they really want to have a great experience. One of the things we got from a very top agent who's lo- located in, in Nashville now was, you know, he reached out to us right away and he said, finally, Nashville has a second great room to pair with the Ryman Auditorium. Wow. And this town has needed that second great room for a long, long time. 
he said it. I didn't say it. If yeah. it's true, if it's true, that it's really high praise that we managed to squeeze into that kind of a discussion. Talk to me about the difference in the markets between recovery, because the markets are so different. I mean, they have similarities: New York, Las Vegas, and Nashville. But um, obviously, the mentality I think of each city, each state is very different. So I'm just curious: did you see like a larger bump in one location than another? You know, it is different. It is nuanced, and of course the state and local regulations define that to a certain extent. You know, we can't do things exactly the same way in each place. And, you know, we don't really want to define the, the world for other people in terms of regulations. But what we really do want to do is provide a place that's, that's coherent in, in its approach to safety, health and safety, and um, and that, you know, really holds together so that people can come in and have a great experience and, and frankly, lose themselves a little bit for, for a few minutes or a few hours, you know, when they come in. Uh, every place has been a little different in terms of how quickly it's come back. When people came back to Las Vegas, they rushed back in, in droves. I think in Nashville, they kind of never stopped coming to a certain extent. Mm. Um, things were shut down. They, they were shut down for a while, but, but um, in certain parts of town, like Lower Broadway, the really touristy area, you know, the town fathers allowed that to be open at a time when, when frankly, we couldn't be open. And I don't want to overspeak here because there's certain, certain nuances to how you're categorized as a business and, and different reasons why you, maybe you couldn't be open in another business that seems to be similar is allowed to be open in another part of town. But these places have all come back in slightly different ways, and I don't really know how to characterize it, but we're delighted to be back, and we're especially delighted to finally get the doors open in Philadelphia after all this time. How do you think COVID has impacted just live music in general, the industry or the future? Do you think there's a lasting impact or any changes that you know these last almost two years have brought to the industry? Yeah, you know, the story hasn't really been fully written yet. But I think there are a lot of different things that don't really meet the eye for the public. You know, there are a lot of people who are asking for refunds and you want to be reasonable in terms of people getting refunds and, and not having a bad experience in that way if some personal circumstance of theirs gets in the way. But, you know, the cancellations of bands and again, not putting any negativity to somebody's decision or necessity for canceling. But it's a real factor in the business. Mm -hmm. You know, if we just come up with a, with a date a couple months out there and we had a two or three date uh, engagement with, with some band that we felt could sell out the room or we knew could sell out the room. And then a month later, six weeks later, all of a sudden they cancel. You know, what that means to us, as well as to any other venue, there's nothing unique about us. That means that the other bands that we might have booked, they're gone. They're gone. They they landed with somebody else because we went with the band that we went with, and now we're just kind of stuck with some prime nights, which we're probably not going to be able to fill very successfully. Right. There's so many different ways that that things are are really, you know, costing the venue a lot of extra money. And one of the ways is in our case, we do a lot of business with special events, 
we try not to close the place down for wall-to-wall -wall buyouts very often at all, but on occasion we do that. But in any case, people come in and they might take a few lanes and they're, you know, they're, 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 they're there to spend some money. And, and um, it's very helpful to us in terms of being able to stay open and, and offer the bands at a great price, the whole thing that we, that we try to do. Uh, but, you know, right now we knew it more than a year ago that, that the Christmas season, the holiday season for 2020 wasn't going to be anything. And we said, well, at least in 2021. Well, of course, now we know that it's not going to be much. <laughs> People right. will throw little parties, but they won't throw big parties in general. And so at our different locations, um, that has, you know, that has quite an effect. And for a lot of different places, that has quite an effect. But, you know, we still have our obligations. We still have to pay, um, probably have to pay our staff more than, than we used to because of, you know, because of various exogenous forces in terms of, of competing for staff. And um, we still have to pay taxes. We still have to pay our rent. You know, things don't change for us except for things that impact us in a negative way. But that's not a matter of, you know, it's not about crying in your beer. But there's other things too, which are not unique to us, not unique to our business, but are definitely impactful of us. The supply chain issues that you see everywhere mm -hmm. in building Philadelphia, we've had to be on top of that whole issue like doggedly for months now. We saw it coming um, and it, you know, we've still been impacted by it, but we're going to be able to get open successfully. Uh, whereas if we've just taken it passively and, and made the mistake of thinking, you know, this isn't really a unique situation we're going through right now, I think we could probably say without any hesitation that we'd be pushing our opening. We would not be ready to open because of different things that creep up seemingly out of nowhere. Even if you're asking the question every day, are we okay? Is that, is that delivery still coming on time? You'll get the answer that you want, the answer you want, the answer you want. And then one day, the people on the other end will finally come clean that, no, you're not going to get it. And then you have to take another course. So this isn't unique to venues, but it's certainly new. It certainly pertains to every business, really, and especially to a business that's, that's trying to build out and get open for the first time. What would you say is your biggest like lesson learned from a business perspective? I feel like you shared some of it, but going through this pandemic, you know, we've all had to think differently. What would you say is, is the biggest lesson that you've learned from a business perspective? This is going to sound a little trite, but, you know, when you think you see how this thing is breaking, you know, you, you kind of have to rein yourself in a little bit and say, well, okay, you know, the world's opening up, but you can't just graph this out as a typical trend. If things are starting to open up, then in a typical trend, then next week they're open more, next month they're open more than that. And, you know, this has got so many fits and starts to it. So, you know, we've had to be, we've had to be careful in terms of how we bring people back. We've had to be really careful in terms of how we spend the limited resources that we have. And again, that almost everybody's in that club, almost everybody has limited resources at the end of the day. And, you know, how do you spend them? But I guess that's really what it comes down to, because you're going to be dealt hands that you couldn't foresee, that you never got dealt in the past, ever got dealt in the past 
with with COVID and all the ramifications of COVID, and they continue to this day. So you know, expect the unexpected, but you know, plan for success in the future, and and keep keep doing what you do. And which you know <laughs> could be a real cautionary statement, but but you know, moving ahead in a cautionary way, but with optimism and looking for opportunities is probably what we've learned to do during this time. Well, I'm personally very excited to check out the new Philly location when it opens up next month. Do you have official opening day? It's November 4th. It's a Thursday. Awesome. Well, we look forward to covering that with our Metro Philly and supporting that opening because I'm sure you're going to hire a lot of people from those locations. How many people do you hire when you open up a new location like that roughly? Well, we end up in each of these places with well over 100 employees. And t- typically, there it doesn't amount to 100 full-time job equivalents. But as my partner, Peter Shapiro, said years ago, it, it takes a lot of gas to run one of these. And he, he's and he's right. And, and that mostly comes in the form of labor. So, you know, we'll, we'll continue to hire. We've had real success in Philadelphia hiring people that we want to hire. Awesome. And, and in terms of getting a, a turnout for our job fair, which was just, you know, a short time ago. But still, you know, you're still looking for, for more talent, certain areas, not many people show up at all. Um, it's a really interesting question, you know, what's going to happen in terms of the labor market. I personally think that there will be a time that comes not too far in the future when a lot of people who are not working, sitting on the sidelines, um, suddenly realize that they need to. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe the job, you know, situation, the the staffing situation will remain just as hard as it is right now. We have a great reputation with people. And I think that even translated to to Philadelphia. So we were we benefited from having a little track history. I assume that if people really want to get the full lineup of performances across your location, the best place is to go to Brooklynbowl.com. It is. It is, you know, I mean we're all over the place, Instagram, uh, Facebook. We're, we're in so many different places, but going, going to the website is, is a great idea. Terrific. Well, Charlie, it's always great to see you. And thank you so much for your time for coming on the podcast. It's, uh, it's just terrific to hear your success story. And, you know, you're a great person. And, and thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, we're going to probably like you, you know, we'll, we'll try to get involved in the community and, and, and we will get involved in the community in, in Philadelphia. It just seems like an empty victory. You know, if you have a business that makes money, but doesn't have any connection, any real connection to the community, it's foreign to us. We don't think like that. So we're looking forward to being involved in Philadelphia as we're getting involved in uh, Nashville, as we become involved in Las Vegas. Well, I'm sure you're going to have great success like all the other locations. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, Charlie. Always a pleasure. See you soon. Look forward to it. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Schneps Connects podcast. To listen to any of our podcasts, you can stream them online or go to podcast.schnepsmedia.com.